fake sports fans to the Friday Funhouse podcast. I am your host and commissioner of the What Rhymes with Puck Fantasy Hockey League, Anthony. And yes, I am acutely aware that I never publish these on a Friday, despite the name. The name of the podcast actually harkens back to a uh, tradition, or maybe just a habit that I used to have of playing sand volleyball on Friday nights. Going home and getting super wine-wasted while I wrote a blog about our Fantasy Hockey League. Uh, Never really came up with a better name after that, so it's followed me to the podcast, and I refuse to be sorry for not keeping up a regular posting schedule, even if the name of the podcast includes a day of the week. Uh, Anyway, this week we will have part three of four in our draft breakdown. Uh, We'll talk about this whole Wall Street bets situation, and if I'm lucky, I'll finally get Jacob to be on the podcast so I can finally use the intro segment I created specially for him. So, uh, pitter-patter, I suppose. Listen, I get it. Most of the people in this league are from Kansas City and are currently experiencing Super Bowl anxiety, so fantasy sports, especially a draft that was held a full month ago, barely feels like it matters right now. But I told people I'd break down all the tiers of this draft, and damn it, that's what we're doing. If I'm ever going to be a world-class, highly monetized podcaster, I have to create a schedule and stick to it. I also have to find a way to get guests to talk about interesting shit with me, or this all just ends up being super dry and dull. Also, if I don't get guests, I can't create super cool intro buffers for the people in the league. Basically, we're about 10 minutes away from me going back to making this a vlog. But in those 10 minutes, I'm gonna talk about the draft. Today's teams up for review are ranked 4 through 6 in projected points after the draft, and happen to all be related to each other, which actually makes this section super easy, because I'm officially boycotting Melissa's team, because I'm pretty sure she does not consume any of this content. Melissa, I will do a full special segment on your team if you just type these magic words in our Facebook Messenger group. I have a toy pony. He takes big shits. Shit. Spoilers, I guess. Uh, Melissa's team was number five in our post-draft rankings, clocking in at almost exactly halfway between David and Jess, and an apparent attempt to keep peace in their household. Noble, but not enough to make me even look at your roster. So since number five is out of the way, I guess we'll start at number six on the list. And the person in the league who I know has the strongest reactions to the things that I say about their team, Jessica. Jessica tends to take things about her team very personally and is not shy about telling me, or anyone really, when she's cranky. So I'm kind of excited to talk about her team because at least I know whether someone listened to the podcast. Uh, Before we get into the breakdown, I'm going to start referring to NHL points, you know, assists and goals as just simply points, and fantasy scoring points as fantasy points, and hope that'll keep some of the confusion to a minimum when we switch between pretend hockey and real hockey analysis. So yeah, Jessica's been there, done that, Uh, comes in at 6th in our post-draft points projections, barely 10 points ahead of Dave Young, but 75 points behind the 5th ranked team owned by she who will not be named. Uh, Jessica kept Sidney Crosby, uh, Mika Zabinija, blah, 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 and uh, Brayden Holtby going into the draft. Uh, Jacob actually has Jess rated as one of the worst in keeper value, and this is normally where I'd argue with him, um, because arguing with Jacob is fun, but not this time. Uh, Crosby's keeper cost of $238 makes him the second most expensive player in our entire league, more than guys named Matthews, McKinnon, McDavid, and Dreisaitl, but he's currently ranked 96th in the league in scoring. This is uh, not good. Sure, Pittsburgh's had a couple of games postponed, which will hurt the league points, but Crosby's only putting up .8 points per game, which is good for 118th in the NHL. That's not good. Not good at all. Which brings the homer effect back into focus, really. It's, It's so easy to overbid on your favorite players from your favorite teams, and of course Jess is going to have a heart boner for Sid, who used to be a kid, but here's where Jacob's dispassionate view that all players are simply a commodity comes in handy. Had Jess been willing to simply let Crosby try out the free agent market, she probably could have overpaid him to keep him and still saved over $100, as Yahoo had his value much closer to $120. But then again, Jess paid about $240. So like a 20-something who rubs one out for clarity before making a big decision, Jess really should have jerked her heart off before the draft. She has the similar problem in her keeper, Brayden Holtby, uh, who she spent $113 to keep against an estimated $30 value. Uh, Holtby was the fifth most expensive goalie in our draft, but is only 11th best in production. Uh, given the goalie-based mania that occurred in this draft, Holtby was a little more forgivable, but you definitely get the feeling that Jessica was reminiscing about the Holtby who was anchoring the Capitals on the way to a cup championship in 2018, 
and not the Holtby who is stuck in a platoon in Vancouver and putting up a 3.66 goals against average. Which, admittedly, is better than the other half of the platoon, Thatcher Dimko, but not by much. But it's not all terrible news for Jessica's been there, done that, as her third keeper, Mika, is... Oh. Oh no. I guess it is all terrible. Uh, Mika Zabinajad came into the season ranked 13th and is currently ranked 346th, with only a single goal and two assists to his credit in the first 10 games. Toss in eight penalty minutes and a low shots on goal output, and it's hard to see Mika carrying this team very far. The one good thing you can say is that he was cheap. Uh, Still, heading into the draft, Jess dropped $363 on keepers, which was fourth most in the league, uh, which left her with only $442 to pick players with. And what she did with that money didn't exactly blow the roof off things. Uh, Her big-ticket item in the draft was relatively cheap compared to most teams. Uh, $50 spent on Tristan Jari, the 11th-rate goalie in preseason. Uh, Jari immediately rewarded that faith by starting the season 2-3 and and falling all the way to the 50th-ranked goalie, while losing more and more playing time to Casey DeSmith, who is only 3-3 on the season, but is giving up a full goal fewer per game than Jari. It's hard to say what the issue is in Pittsburgh beyond general suckiness, as the Penguins are in the bottom half of the league in points, and both DeSmith and Jari's save percentages are below 90%. Uh, Pittsburgh is actually 7th best in the NHL in shots allowed per game at only 27 per contest, but they are 4th worst in the NHL in goals allowed, giving up 3.7 goals per game. Tossing the fact that they're scoring nearly a full goal less per game than they're giving up, and ranking 20th in the NHL in goals scored per game, and the two things start to feel very apparent. Uh, their offense sucks, but their goaltending sucks even worse. And Penguins probably aren't going to carry your fantasy team to a title this year. Even our best goalie is making life hard just for just lately. Uh, Simeon Varlamov is putting up five fantasy points per game for the Islanders so far this season, but he's definitely trending in the wrong direction. Uh, kicked off his first three starts on the season with one goal allowed over three wins, posting two shutouts, averaging more than nine fantasy points per start. But he's dropped his last three games, averaging less than one fantasy point per start, while giving up nearly four goals per game. Looking on the positive side of Jess's roster, though, Jeff Petrie, a defenseman for Montreal, is the 13th best skater and top defenseman in our fantasy league currently, uh, posting five goals and eight assists from the blue line. Uh, Jess snagged Petrie for the low, low price of $10 and should feel as good about Petrie as she feels bad about Crosby and Jari. Uh, Anze Kopitar, who should really be on my team, uh, but I'm glad to see that he's doing well on Jess's roster, has posted 12 assists and a goal in his first 10 games, and is ranked 44th amongst all skaters. Uh, Jess spent a little more on Kopitar than Petrie, but $34 still feels pretty good for a top 50 skater, who is your second best player. Alexander Radulov is also putting up 3.44 fantasy points per game this season, with 3 goals and 8 assists in 8 games for the late start Dallas Stars. Uh, Jess dropped only $9 on Radulov, a combo left and right winger who jumped to the top of her lineup when Dallas was finally let out of quarantine. And speaking of Dallas, uh, Jess had to snag her team namesake, uh, Jamie Benn, despite starting the season both quarantine and on the DL. And that move actually turned out to be pretty smart, as Ben has posted 4.45 fantasy points per game, which is tops on Jess's roster. Uh, ben may have started the season late, but he has three goals and three assists in only four games, which is pretty damn good. Uh, Dallas as a whole has been pretty damn good, really. Uh, they've played a league-least eight games so far in the season, but they actually lead the league in goals scored per game and are second-best in goals per game differential, outscoring uh, their opponents by an average of 1.5 goals per game. Uh, second only to the Tampa Bay Lightning, who score fewer goals but give up even less uh, than, than Dallas is as well. So having some Dallas skaters as the backbone of her lineup is a much better move than relying on Pittsburgh Penguins. In our preseason podcast, Jacob and I both mentioned that we were a little scared of Jess's roster, but the results just haven't been there. Uh, she only has two skaters, Petrie and Kopitar, in the top 25 total points this season. But when you move to average fantasy points per game, that number doubles as the Dallas duo starts to come into play. Uh, her record basically reflects all the trends we've already talked about. Uh, bolstered by Varlamov's hot start, uh, just posted a win and the fifth best scoring output in week one. But then Varlamov falls flat, uh, her roster is pretty blah, and the stars are still in quarantine, and she has a very brutal week two and posts the worst score in the entire league. Now that we're in the third week and Dallas is breaking out, uh, she's got a strong lead in her game and the third best point output so far in the week. Um, so 
What does that mean for Jess? I, I really have no idea. Uh, despite walking to the draft, having already burned over almost half her cap space, um, she still managed to walk away from the draft with $171 uh, worth of cap for free agency. Um, does she wish that she had bid on Connor McDavid or maybe one of the better goalies that were available? Probably, but that doesn't mean that she's not a threat going forward. Uh, projecting forward, she's going to be in third place in the division, but only a game back of second place Noah Gretzky's, who she's currently outscoring by nearly 10 points this week. So she's really trending in the right direction, despite a completely fucking up her keepers. Uh, she has a real chance to make the playoffs. And then cap space is pretty scary, too. Uh, like, if she could figure out how to put together a trade for a decent goalie or maybe another skater, she could be a legitimate threat to everyone. But for now, I'll enjoy the fact that I'm a full game ahead of her in the standings and a week two tiebreaker thanks to an absolute ass-whipping that I laid on her. Uh, Jess, if you're listening, I, I'm not sure why you thought this section would have a happy ending. But at least you're winning this week, and not down by nearly 20 points to Ashton, like our fourth best team in points projections. Yep, uh, David's JT Millers are currently getting their asses kicked by the undefeated No Regretskis. What the fuck? David was one of the three teams that spent more than Jess on keepers, uh, sacrificing more than half of his cap space, uh, $423, uh, to, to secure his keepers before the draft. The most expensive gadget in the shopping cart was the perennial league leader in shots on goal, Alex, Alex Ovechkin. Uh, David's first concern in the move is that Ovechkin is now the highest paid player in our league at $254. That's a full $16 more than the super underachieving and major regret Sidney Crosby, and $34 more than fantasy league leader Connor McDavid. That's, um, that's a lot. And it's even more when you consider that Ovechkin is the 75th best skater in the league currently. The situation is a little bit better when you consider that Ovechkin missed four games in the middle of the season to start, so if you judge him by fantasy production per game, Ovi does vault all the way up to 19th overall at 4.07 points per game. But still, you'd have to drop some Rudy Giuliani-type logic to make an argument that David didn't overpay for Ovechkin. Ovechkin's also showing some mild signs of decline at 35 years of age. Uh, last season, he was the second overall um, in shots per game, posting four and a half shots uh, per contest and posting a shooting percentage over 15%. But so far this season, he's down half a shot on goal per game and his shooting percentage has regressed all the way down to 10%. And, you know, fewer shots on goal uh, combined with a lower conversion percentage, that's, that's not a hopeful conversation. David's other two keepers are happier tales, though. Uh, John Carlson was his least expensive keeper at $62 and has been performing pretty much at expectations. Uh, he was ranked 24th in preseason rankings, and he's currently sitting at 26th in the league. Uh, having a top-line defenseman on your roster is a major key to winning and something that most teams actually struggle to acquire in the season. So having Carlson's 3.78 points per game on his roster, and especially at his blue line, has to make David happy. Uh, his last keeper, Connor Hellebuck, uh, was a bit pricey at $107, but in a draft where there was an insane run on goalies, having the ninth-ranked goalie in our league for about 100 bucks is a hell of a deal. But it's hard to count that in David's favor, really, as the JT Millers actually helped create that goalie run by drafting six fucking goalies. During the draft, David added Malcolm Subban, Alexander Georgia, Corey Crawford, Jonathan Quick, and Carter Hutton. Um... They only had an average price tag of $3 per player, but that's that's a lot of goalies. Uh, and then David, of course, opened up the player movement on the season because, one, that's too many goalies. And two, uh, he had to drop Corey Crawford the week before the season when Crawford actually retired. But don't worry, though. Uh, David was only at five goals goalies for about a week, um, and his roster crisis was completely averted when he picked up Ben Bishop, uh, who Eduardo dropped when he was placed on the IR. Um, David paid another $3 for Bishop and immediately stashed him on his IR. Uh, then two days later and a week into the Blackhawks season, uh, David dropped Malcolm Subban, who gave up five goals in his season debut and then sat out Chicago's next five contests. Probably a good move as Chicago now stands at four and eight on the season and Subban is giving up four goals per game in his own, only two starts. At that point, David added Casey to Smith, uh, the other half of the shit show goalie platoon in Pittsburgh that we discussed earlier. DeSmith is 3-2 on the season, which is nice, but that 8-8-2 save percentage is very tough to swallow. Still, he's playing better than Tristan Jari, and way better than Malcolm Subban. So, if you're keeping track, uh, so far David has rostered uh, DeSmith, Bishop, Subban, Crawford, Quick, Hutton, Georgiev, 
and Hellebuck at the goalie position so far this year. So I guess it's a good thing that he dropped $107 on Hellebuck preseason uh, because he's totally fucked up the goalie market for everybody else. Hilariously, the other eight goalies on his team have come in at a total cap uh, cost of only $18. Um, so it just seems like David has a goalies wanted poster outside of his shop. Uh, and then you go into inquire and, uh, you know, you find out that the pay is only $2 and 25 cents for the whole season. So I feel like if free agents in our league actually had artificial intelligence, David would never be able to sign another goalie ever. So what has all of this done for David? Well, in weeks two and three, David is averaging 12 fantasy points total from the goalie position. So having that many goalies really hasn't paid off for him. I'm not sure how to put that in perspective, really, but it's definitely not good. Given the boner that David has for goalies, it's sort of no surprise that his only win so far is in week one, when his Special Forces goalie Team 6 actually posted eight wins and 55.8 fantasy points in his matchup against goalie coach Eduardo. But since then, he's had a bit of a rough go. The biggest bright spot in his roster, though, uh, has to be draft pick Tyler Toffoli, who is outperforming all expectations, especially for his $4 price tag, as he somehow finds himself as the sixth best scorer in our league overall. With nine goals and four assists in his first 12 games, the 28-year-old is, like, doing some serious shit up there in Quebec. Despite being on the third line with a center uh, that DailyFaceOff.com doesn't even have rated, uh, the Canadians are leading the NHL in wins and goals scored per game, so there's obviously some really great offense going on up there. It's just really strange that it's coming from this line and from Toffoli specifically. I mean, I don't know. Hockey's weird. Uh, Nikolaj Eilers, uh, who David picked up in week one for the league minimum, also breaks into the top 25 in fantasy points for Winnipeg, uh, posting six goals and six assists in their first 11 games, uh, doing his best to help Hellebuck post some more wins. And then there's the aforementioned John Carlson, and that's pretty much it, though, for uh, for happy thoughts. High-priced draft pick uh, Patrick Lane and his $106 price tag have been on the shelf after an early-season trade forced him to quarantine before being shipped from Winnipeg to Columbus. $109 uh, pick John Tavares hasn't been terrible, per se, but is performing well below his preseason ranking. And the highest-priced draft pick that David picked up during the draft, Gabriel Landeskog, is off to a very rough start, only posting three goals and five assists in his first 11 games, with two of those goals coming in Colorado's second game. Now Landeskog has hit the COVID list and is likely out for at least a week. Really, David's roster is just in a rough spot. He's got eight active players on his roster who've scored less than 20 points on the season, so it's not hard to see why Ashton is playing a little rough with him this week. But despite the fact that David was originally projected to score nearly 150 points more than just this season, his outlook is actually far worse. David has the fourth highest point output so far this season, which matches his draft analysis exactly, but he also finds himself currently sitting in the very last playoff spot in the far tougher of the two divisions. And only with $6 of cap space to get him through the next 10 weeks of the regular season and the playoffs. I can say that it seems like David is willing to wheel and deal, though, uh, as he reached out earlier this week to find out the draft cost of Tyler Toffoli and mentioned that he's looking for defense. So if you're listening to this, uh, maybe you can get with JT Millers and, and make some sort of a deal. And I mean, really, that's it for David's roster um, in terms of the, the interesting points there. Um, and I guess that's pretty well it for this week as well. Um, if it wasn't clear earlier, Melissa's Nameless team was supposed to be our third team this week, um, but... We did a random drawing in the Never Otter Even offices, and Melissa was the winner, or loser, or however you want to look at being blacklisted by a podcast that has four weekly listeners. Yeah, that's right. It's a 12-team league, and only a third of you fuckers are actually listening to this shit, which is pretty disappointing. So we're taking it all out on Melissa, who is in the Facebook chat but never says anything, and until she does, we just won't talk about her team. Which is too bad, because it's actually doing better than uh, both David and Jess. But didn't hear that here let's take a break so i've really wanted to talk about this gamestop wall street bets thing for quite a while and wanted jake to hop on to talk with me about it um especially the morality angle of the conversation uh, to me short selling a stock just seems wrong on multiple levels but i'll talk more about that in a minute uh, unfortunately i couldn't get jake on with me a busy guy and it, it's hard to schedule some of that time 
but before we get into, you know, the morality of the whole thing, sadly, the whole conversation, you know, needs some backstory. So I'll be talking about some of the basic stuff in here that um, you you may already know or may be sick of hearing. But obviously, the first place we start is um, with the purpose of a company issuing stock. And really, it's just to raise funds for the business, right? Um, so when a company is going, you know, public and they're going to issue stock, they're raising funds to try to increase their capacity to do whatever it is that they're doing and hopefully turn a larger profit and therefore reward the people that buy their stock. Uh, as a consumer, you're going to purchase stock in a company uh, with the general hope that the stock will increase in price over time and that when the timing's appropriate for you and you sell the stock, um, you know, you're going to realize a profit for your investment. So really, people only purchase a stock because they anticipate the value of the stock increasing, and they anticipate that increasing at a greater rate than the interest that they'd receive if they simply put the money into a savings account in their bank, right? So in the traditional purchase of stock, you'd buy a stock at $10, and you'd hold it until the value increased to a point where you're comfortable with the amount of profit that you make, um, or until you, know, you potentially need cash for something else, and then you'd sell and you'd realize that profit. Of course, investing in a company doesn't make you a winner by default. Sometimes the company's value drops and you lose some money um, when you sell at a lower cost than it was uh, when you bought it. Or even worse, uh, sometimes a company goes bankrupt and your stock value drops to zero with no help of ever returning. And none of that obviously uh, feels very good at all. So that all seems simple enough, right? Uh, I invest in a company. I obviously want them to do well so that I can make that money. But short-selling a stock, which is what this whole GameStop comes down to, is really different in a bunch of ways, and most of which just feel stupid. Uh, so let's go back to your original stock purchase of $10, right? Let's say that you bought 100 shares of Z Company for $10 a piece, which is a $1,000 investment. We'll use round numbers just so the math stays easy in our head. Um, someone else looks at Z Company and they say, oh, $10 is way too much. That's way overvalued. Um, that's ridiculous. It's about to come down. If they were your friend, they'd probably recommend to you that you sell your stock now. You know, you've got it for $10, you should probably sell it because the price is about to go down, uh, so you don't risk losing any money on those transactions. Um, but let's be honest, most of the time we wouldn't listen anyway, right? But ultimately, they're not your friend. Uh, they're a money-hungry shark, and you're a chum-soaked bag of money. So they slide into your DMs and they say, hey, uh, can I borrow your shares in Z Company? I'll totally give them back as soon as you ask me to. And you're thinking to yourself, borrow my shares, I, I suppose. Like, it's really weird. They say they're going to give you interest, so at least there's something in it for you. You're going to get some money uh, as part of loaning it out to them. Um, and, and really, that's why you're here, is to make money, right? So on that level, yeah, sure. Somebody comes to ask you to borrow your partial ownership in a company, and you say yes. So right away, the whole thing sounds sketchy. Why would anybody ever want to borrow that partial ownership I mean, really, it's the same reason you'd borrow anything. If I need to dig a hole in the backyard, like I did last summer, I go to a rental place and I borrow a gas-powered auger. They loan it to me, I dig the hole, and then I return it. Of course, to let me have it, uh, even temporarily, they want me to give them something in return, which is money. But ultimately, they don't really care what I did with the auger, so long as I return it in a workable condition. Similarly, when you loan your partial ownership of your company to somebody else, you really don't care what they're doing with it, so long as they give it back to you in the same condition that you received it. Uh, additionally, they're offering you money, um, you're, you know, so there's something in it for you the same way that the rental place gets something from me. Um, yeah, so you just basically, you have that outstanding share and you know that you own it and you'll get it back, you know, whatever the contractually agreed upon time frame is. Still, it, it feels super weird. Like, what could they actually want to do with it? They have to give it back to you. I mean, are they just building paper airplanes with it? Like, what, what exactly is happening there? And that's where the story gets even more sketchy. Um, so after borrowing the stock from you, the short seller is going to immediately sell your stock. So they see it, it's valued at $10, they borrow it from you, they sell it for $10. Um, you know, trying to give it a, you know, some sort of parallel to actual tangible items that we see every day. I mean, could you imagine if I asked to borrow your car and then I immediately sold it? I mean, you'd have some major concerns. Uh, first and foremost, that I'm probably addicted to meth. Um, and you'd probably tell me that you want your car back right fucking now. But when it comes to selling stock and loaning out stock, the, the feelings aren't quite the same, right? You don't have as much utility for it in that moment. It's not like you need to drive your kids to school with your partial ownership of a company. So at this point, I've borrowed your 100 shares of Z stock, and I've immediately sold it, right? And I've pocketed $1,000. But I know that at any moment, or whenever the contractual period is up, I have to return that for you. And I'll need to repurchase those 100 shares back 
in order to give them to you, right? So you own 100 shares, but you've loaned them. I owe you 100 shares, but I have nothing in my hands now other than $1,000. That all feels super gross and shady to me, but, you know, it gets worse in my opinion because I've done all of this because I'm actually betting on the Z stock to plummet, right? I've made all these maneuvers because I'm actually betting against a company and I'm expecting that their value will decrease. And when you ask for your stock to be returned, my assumption, my bet in this scenario is that it's worth less than it was when I borrowed it from you and I sold the shares. Because if the shares drop, when I buy them to return them back to you, um, I actually turn a profit. So let's say I sold your shares for $1,000 and then the stock price drops down to $5 per share. I'll buy them back for $500, return your shares to you, and then I get to keep the $500 difference for myself. Uh, minus, you know, whatever the interest is that I had to pay to you. So I've literally created $500 of value out of nothing other than gambling against other investors. I didn't invent something new. I didn't build something. I didn't babysit your kids. I just happened to bet against a company and win. Except that it's worse than, than like gambling at a casino or even like playing cards with your friends. Because at least when you lose money in those situations, you're actually paying for the value of entertainment, right? You're getting some enjoyment, some camaraderie, some laughs out of the whole thing. In this scenario, you're literally just rooting for somebody to fail. And that's it. That, that's short selling in the simplest terms. I see a stock that I think is overvalued. I borrow that stock from someone. I sell it immediately. I wait for the price to drop. I buy it back. I return the shares to the person who loaned it to me. I pocket the difference. I keep saying I'm creating value from something, losing value, but that's not really the case, right? I'm not really creating value. I'm just basically looting investors who are either stupid or, in most cases, just less coordinated than me. If you had realized that the stock value was going to drop yourself, you would have never loaned those shares to me to begin with. You would have simply sold them themselves. So the, the value transfer actually doesn't go, uh, isn't created, you know, out of thin air. The value transfer actually is me stealing from you through the mechanism of borrowing your stock and preventing you from being able to sell it before you lose money. Um, that, that just feels so skeezy for me, but it's not like this is some sort of new invention, right? Short selling stocks has actually been in practice as far back as the early 1600s. Uh, Edward Stringham, who's an economist at the, uh, Austrian school and, uh, president of the American Institute for Economic Research in Great Barrington, Massachusetts has written extensively about short selling and the sophisticated contracts of the Amsterdam stock exchange in the 17th century. But even as far back as the 1600s, people realized that shorting a stock actually had the effect of influencing the stock price to drop. So the very fact that people are betting against the company causes perception of that company to sour. And as a result, the value of the stock drops. Just like a run on buying stocks will increase the price or a run on selling will decrease, uh, enough people shorting a stock will inevitably pressure the price to decline. It's not as dramatic as, as everybody selling the stock at the same time, but it, it still definitely has you know, an impact on the value of the stock. So really, fast forward to modern times, and that's where GameStop kind of found itself, right? It's a brick-and-mortar store feeling pressure from both a digital world and an epidemic that, that pretty well prohibits foot traffic. And it seemed like a good bet that uh, GameStop could potentially lose value or even disappear altogether. I mean, could you imagine the victory for somebody shorting a stock in that scenario? You, you borrow the stock, you sell it, and then the company goes belly up. There's literally nothing to buy back and nothing to return to the original person who loaned it to you. And, and that'd be like hitting the jackpot, right? So it's not necessarily a surprise, though, that a lot of people are shorting GameStop, you know, in our, in our current environment. But we really need to define a lot here as well, because there are other layers to this that, again, just make it feel super gross to me. And in GameStop scenario, it's a lot, a lot, like a dramatic a lot, like over 100% of GameStop's actual stock was shorted, which sounds impossible, right? You can't give 110% effort. How can you short 140% of a company's stock? But if you just add, you know, a simple wrinkle and another layer of actors to our scenario shorting a stock, then you can see how easy it is for the same share to actually be shorted twice. So let's use, you know, our league, just the people uh, in this scenario. Let's say that David has 100 shares of GameStop and I'm betting, I'm ready to bet against GameStop. I'm ready to, to you know, short David's shares. So I borrow David's 100 shares and I immediately sell them to Jacob. Uh, I now have, you know, the money from selling those 100 shares David has 100 shares that are owed back to him, and Jacob has 100 shares in his hand. Jacob owes David nothing. Uh, as far as he's concerned, the stock is 100% his, and he has no obligations and can do whatever he wants with the stock itself. 
So then say that Isaiah goes to Jacob and borrows the stock and then immediately sells it to Ashton. So there are only actually 100 shares in this scenario that I'm giving you, but I owe David 100 shares and Isaiah owes Jacob 100 shares. And it's all good if the price actually drops because then, you know, when Isaiah um, goes to buy that stock back, he's going to turn a profit, give it back to Jacob. I'm going to buy the stock back. I'm going to turn a profit and give it back to David. Um, but if it doesn't, if the stock doesn't actually drop in that scenario, that's that's a lot of pressure because shorting a stock has a real legitimate risk, right? Just because you assume a company's value is not going to go down doesn't mean it will. And so to double that risk on every single share is just just... A, a ton of pressure. It's kind of it's kind of insane. So imagine if instead of the price dropping, the stock price were to increase, right? In a normal scenario, the, the person shorting the stock loses money. So say I sold the stock for $10 a share, but I'm obligated to purchase and return that stock back to David. If it goes up to $15 a share, um, you know, I can't just sit there forever and be like, oh man, I, I should have held on to it longer and sold it at 15 instead of 10, could have made more money. It's not possible in this scenario because David can call on that stock at any point. If he wants it back, he you know gets it back. It's contractual. I have to return it to him. So now I have to sit there and ask myself when I'm actually going to buy those shares back and take my loss. So if the, the prices go up to $15, do I take my you know $5 per share loss now? Or do I hold on to it and hope that the price actually drops back down closer to 10 again? Or, you know... If, if I'm super lucky, does it drop below 10 and I can actually turn at least a little bit of a profit? But, you know, like I was saying, when the short is over 100% of the shares, the risk is now doubled. Every single one of those, you know, stock ownerships has double that on it. So if I lost $5 per share and then, you know, Isaiah has to buy it back to return to Jake, he's also going to lose $5 per share. You know, you've doubled your losses, um, you know, on, on the actual stock that's out there. So anyway, uh, that's where GameStop found itself. Uh, legitimately, they had about 140% of their shares shorted as hedge funds were basically rooting for them to die. And it just all feels so, so sleazy. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel good at all. Um, but there's another side of the story, right? And this is where the Redditor Deep Fucking Value enters the story. Um, and actually, he entered the story long before any of this madness started. In 2019... Um, you know, which was a magical pre-pandemic time when we were allowed to actually hug, hug people and shit. Uh, deep fucking value actually invested $50,000 in GameStop. Uh, he had been watching their stock and he saw that after a very long trend downwards in their stock price, GameStop kind of leveled out and then actually started to gain some value back. And so when he looked at it and he saw what the potential, you know, maximum capacity was for the value of GameStop... To him, it looked like it was severely under, undervalued, that there was a real chance that if he invested at that point, he could turn a good profit for himself. So he buys $50,000 worth of shares at that point in time, um, you know, with the expectation that he'll turn a profit on it, right? Pretty straightforward. He believes in the company. He believes he can make money there. Seems like it's going to be good. So, you know, as far back um, as 2019, he was invested. And then in July of 2020, uh, Deep Fucking Value was still touting GameStop as being a strong buy on his uh, YouTube channel. And the price then was only $4 per share. So it's not like he's trying to cause a run to, to become rich. Like, never in his wildest imagination did he ever foresee a future when there's going to be a $350 per share uh, price for the stock. But, you know, $4 per share, he believes that there's value there. And he's telling people about it. So then you fast forward to December of 2020. And GameStop's actually reporting, you know, bad news. They've lost a good chunk of money in the third quarter of 2020, uh, but they're showing some signs of life in the e-commerce space. Like their e-commerce um, nearly tripled, which kind of makes sense in our pandemic times, right? But still, they didn't turn a profit. Um, you know, there's some thoughts about overhead and what it costs to actually still maintain a shop and pay your rent, uh, even though you don't have foot traffic currently. So, you know, there's there's some hope there. Um, and then you move into January and they add the co-founder of Chewy, uh, to their board of directors and Chewy is considered just an absolute e-commerce giant, right? So this signals a shift in GameStop's philosophy, moving from a brick and mortar store to like an online sales platform and, you know, having somebody who's done it before on the board of directors, that's, that's probably a good sign. It looks like now GameStop has a plan and, you know, they're ready to possibly evolve into the future. So this is about the point where Reddit enters the fray, right? In January of 2020. Um, and the subreddit, Wall Street Bets, which is kind of a, a insane place. Like, you should just go check it out. Pre-pandemic, it was more fun. It was more like people playing roulette. I'm going to put $10,000 down on the stock and let's see what happens. Um, kind of soul-crushing sometimes because people did make or just take legitimate massive losses that, that just 
if it were me, I'd, I'd cry myself to sleep, you know, but I'm also not, you know, on Wall Street bets placing money down. So, um, you know, you look at Reddit, though, um, Wall Street Bets is entering the fray at this point. Reddit's basically a community of nerds, right? It's a bunch of people on their laptops, on their cell phones, talking to each other about whatever their community is interested in. So now you've got a whole bunch of people who are super nerds interested in the stock market. And, you know, GameStop's pretty much on brand for these folks. So in addition to the real potential of the company, you know, they see these signs that GameStop could be making a turn. Um, there's also this emotional attachment uh, involved for these investors as well. So... I kind of want to pause at the moment and, and remind you of a point that I made earlier, right? The reason why these hedge funds can be successful in shorting stocks isn't just because they're smarter than you, but it's also because they're more coordinated. You know, they basically rolled up millions and, and billions of dollars of investors' funds into the control of a very small group of people, which gives them, you know, massive amounts of coordinated sway. You know, when they push a button, the stock market feels it, and it's under the control of a small group of people, and they can communicate with each other more effectively and make these moves in a more coordinated manner and have a larger impact on the market, right? So they have this massive advantage because they have a larger cash pool being controlled by a smaller amount of people who communicate and coordinate much better than, you know, a slew of investors acting individually can do so. But, you know, enter the internet, right? So the internet can definitely be leveraged to level that sort of playing field. And that's basically what happened with the Wall Street Bets subreddit. Right? There was some noise about real value being available in GameStop stock, but then there's this realization that the market at large was shorting GameStop, that they were betting against it. And so then the Reddit community orchestrated a buying frenzy. Um, it was both intended to you know, make themselves wealthy, you know, at least turn themselves a profit in the situation, but there's also this underlying vitriol, and they were seeking out to punish these hedge funds that were over-leveraged in betting against the company. They saw this as a real opportunity to get back at the people that they saw as villains in the situation, right? So, you know, they're going in, they're rallying behind GameStop. You know, there's potential for them to make money, but the real potential is for them to crush these companies that have over-bet against, against GameStop. So uh, they leveraged an open trading application called Robinhood, Robinhood uh, which gives individuals everywhere access to the markets in a way that had never been available before, right? Before, if you were going to make a trade on the stock market, you'd have to go to a broker, you'd have to you know, have a portfolio, do this whole thing, you'd have to communicate with them, they'd have to turn around, advise you, make the move. But now you have an app on your phone, you just literally say, I want to buy this stock at this price, and they execute that trade for you. Um, but we'll talk about Robinhood a little bit more uh, down the road here, just because um, I want to keep this thing moving. So in December of 2020, right, GameStop stock price was about $16 per share. It had gone up just like Deep Fucking Value said it would. He expected it to go up. It quadrupled from that $4 per share in July of 2020, right? It reached its peak on January 27th at $347.51 per share. That, that's insane. But an important part of the story is that it didn't stay there. As of today, it's much closer to $50 per share, right? So really, though, the part of the story that's important is that hedge funds end up losing nearly $13 billion betting against GameStop, which is just a brutal sum of money. And hedge funds are now like bailing each other out, investing each other, throwing trillions of dollars into each other's firms just to, to keep them afloat. Um, you know, all sorts of like backroom stuff happening right now to make sure that these companies don't go bankrupt because... That's a big loss. That's a, that's a massive loss. But I want to speed this up a bit and get back into my thoughts on short selling and the fallout from all this action, right? Redditor deep fucking value is very likely at this point going to have to testify before Congress soon. Um, Wall Street bigwigs and influencers everywhere have been coming out in droves, speaking against people coordinating their efforts and creating these meme stocks that people are just investing in because, you know, they like going to the movie theater or they like, you know, video games. So many Redditors are still holding on to their shares of GameStop, and like there's this meme going around saying diamond hands, you know, don't let go, hold tight. Um, and some of them are actually losing big money at this point um, if they weren't the first to get in on the action. So I kind of want to get this down to the overall morality uh, of this sort of situation. And the questions that I really wanted to kind of discuss um, and how you feel about these things, I keep saying it's sleazy, but like when you break it down, is there a morality behind this? What do we think should be the answers to these questions because you know the question of what the fuck is complicated enough when you're talking legally and just executing those trades and everything else but you know answering what the fuck from an ethical standpoint gets even more complicated 
So we'll start with the biggest, easiest question. Uh, should shorting be legal? Um, in general, like I'm all open, I'm all for an open marketplace. Uh, let's find value wherever you can create it. But shorting feels so bad, right? Like you're rooting for somebody to fail and you're actually not hurting a company, but you're fleecing another person in the process. When I borrow your shares from you to sell them and try to turn a profit because I expect the stock to fall, I'm effectively preventing you from selling that share to avoid the loss that you're about to take yourself. If I were a good friend, if I were a good neighbor, like I stated earlier, I'd advise you to sell on your own. Like, get out of this position because it's about to tank. But instead, I'm not going to tell you that that's my intention. Though you probably, if you're savvy enough, realize if I'm asking to borrow your share, that's my intention. Um, but instead, I I'm going to take those shares from you. I'm going to sell it. And then I'm going to return your shares to you in a far less valuable position. Right? So the money doesn't, like, flow from a business to me in that scenario. The money actually flows from investor to investor. I've basically ripped you off. And I suppose like buyer beware or whatever. But when you short a company, the information is also published in the stock exchange. So that's public knowledge. So the very act of shorting a position and heavily shorting a position like these hedge funds did with GameStop. You know, remember, it was it was over leveraged. 140% of its shares were, were shorted. That's kind of a coordinated attack on that particular stock, right? It's public information. Everybody sees that... Everybody on Wall Street is saying that GameStop's about to, to tank. Um, you know, does that does that represent some sort of market fixing? Um, you know, is that legal? It, it certainly doesn't feel good, right? So, you know, a coordinated short like this one, or, or even just a short from a hedge fund with enough resources, could have a damaging effect on a stock price in and of itself. And, you know, again, we're talking about harming other investors, right? We're not talking about harming businesses. Um, you know, you're also harming investors who didn't even loan their shares, right? People who aren't giving their shares away, you know, to be to be shorted are also feeling the pinch there as the value of their ownership, you know, decreases. In fact, several countries in the European Union, um, including Spain, Italy, and France, have actually banned short selling, so should it be allowable in the U.S.? I mean, that's such a big question. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna default to yes, um, but I have a caveat for that 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 I'll get to when I wrap this whole conversation up. Right. Um, the next question for me is fairly easy: um, Is deep fucking value to blame? Uh, he's getting a lot of press. He's you know he's been outed. Like everybody knows his actual name. He's gonna get called before Congress to testify. But I can't imagine that he's responsible for this push in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the guy was in on GameStop you know, long before any of this bullshit happened. And he'd been advocating the value of that stock for quite some time. Uh, the fact that he was elevated to a hero status on Reddit isn't necessarily his fault. I mean, sure, he was out there publicizing his position and touting how much money he'd made and even pontificating, like, what could happen if everybody jumped on board and how it could squeeze these hedge funds and potentially bankrupt them. But... I still see how that is any different from these hedge funds coming together and, you know, determining what their positions on certain stocks are going to be and acting in a coordinated effort that way. He didn't solicit funds from anybody to roll up into his investments. He didn't bully anybody into a position. The thing just took off. It became a meme. And it seems like it's not fair to hold him responsible for that. Um, so, I mean, hopefully... I'm hopeful that they're just going to ask him some questions. They're going to ask him how, you know, the Reddit community works, why he invested, when he invested, um, you know, the basic stuff just to, to cover their bases, make sure that he didn't actually coordinate attack. Um, I'm hopeful that that's it, that they ask him his questions and let him be on his way. But if they do move to penalize him or even revoke his licenses to act as a trader, because he's actually, you know, a licensed um, stock trader, whatever that is, so that he can do it, he can handle investments for um, other people. Uh, then there absolutely needs to be very real consequences for all of these hedge funds and trading houses that influence the market in any way. You can't regulate these individuals who are out there and not punish the large groups of people um, you know, that are coordinating these things on a daily basis just because things broke in a direction that you weren't expecting or you're not pleased with. So... I mean, and you think back, you know, we've already lived through the dot-com bubble and the housing market bubble. Uh, we know that there are no real consequences for any of these billionaires. Um, if deep fucking value is punished, there's no illusion any longer that this game isn't rigged, right? I honestly see little difference between his actions and the actions of Wall Street bets and what happens at Wall Street cocktail parties. Other than, you know, that there's a permanent transcript left on the internet telling you everything that deep fucking value said and did. Now I feel like, though... 
<clears throat> it gets a little more complicated. Um, you know, was this an actual victory for the little guy? Because everybody's painting this as a David versus Goliath sort of thing. And sure, the hedge funds are, are getting a lot of publicity for losing money. And, and the hedge fund companies, you know, are definitely at risk here. Uh, and maybe one or two people will lose their jobs. You know, maybe some executive is going to get outed for taking a bad position and he's going to get the boot. Or maybe somebody didn't react fast enough. But the reality is, is that all this money is actually coming from somewhere. And most of these people that are managing these hedge funds aren't, you know, completely invested in them. It's very unlikely that they're going to go bankrupt as a result of the actions of this particular hedge fund. Um, that money is typically rolling up from companies who are investing their pension in retirement funds. So sure, a lot of rich individual investors will definitely take a hard hit, right? But the people who are banking on the success of these hedge funds are the people who are just trying to retire comfortably, and they're definitely being hurt. So this wasn't necessarily David versus Goliath. It was more along the lines of like David versus David, who's also teamed up with Goliath's Christmas bonus. So these rich people at the top of these hedge funds are definitely going to suffer some consequences, but really it's just investors, again, stealing from each other, hurting each other, which to a certain extent, is, is kind of the name of the game, right? Uh, additionally, they're the people who are late to this Wall Street's bet hype, right? So um, a lot of these people are seeing these loud voices on the internet that are telling them to buy and to hold, to hold, to hold. Well, remember, the stock price got up to almost $350 per share. It's lost 85% of its value from January 27th through today. Anybody who purchased stock in GameStop after January 22nd has officially lost money. Unless it comes back up to extremely high levels, they've they've lost out on on money. They're they're literally going to lose money in this exchange. And then there are other individuals who did buy when it was still super cheap, right? The people who bought before January twenty second, uh, who are just holding on to the stock too long and not selling at the optimal time. So you have people who are legitimately losing money, and then you have people who are legitimately losing opportunity profit, right? They're, they're literally going to become victims of their own meme if they jumped onto the stock too late. Uh, and, and really, it's all just a result of being influenced by these loud noises coming from this corner of the internet. I, I like most things, if you're not first um, in any sort of a business venture, then you know the value is not the same for you as it is for somebody like Deep Fucking Value who invested in it two years ago. So ultimately, a very small amount of the big guys are, are going to hurt from this dust up, whereas more small guys are going to eventually feel the burn from this. And so for me to, to think that this is some sort of David versus Goliath thing and that, you know, we took down the big guy in all this mess, I, I feel like that's just, you know, that's like masturbation. You're just you're just pumping yourself up and telling yourself that you've done something amazing when in reality you've just moved money around the market to different places and you've hurt different people along the way and sure a few people made out like bandits in this whole thing but ultimately it's just a transfer of value and there's no real winner in this scenario but now i want to talk about robin hood um because this one's a big one this trading app kind of came out of nowhere it, it was it was uh, originated back in 2014 right and their mission was to democratize stock trading and in a sense they did um in the year of 2020 they actually grew from three to 13 million users and they're giving direct access to individuals to buy and sell stock. Uh, of course, those users have varying experiences. Um, in a November 2020 paper called Attention, Induced Trading, and Returns, Evidence from Robinhood Users, uh, authors Barber and Odin uh, made the following observations. Um, so half of Robinhood users are first-time investors who are unlikely to have developed their own clear criteria for buying stock. Right? Inexperienced stock investors are likely to be more heavily influenced by attention and by biases than lead, that lead to return chasing. So that's basically telling you that instead of actually making smart moves, they're going to you know chase what they believe to be the thing that gives them the most money, and they're going to be influenced by things like Wall Street bets, right? The Robinhood app directs Robinhood users' attention to the same small subset of stocks, such as the top 20 movers, while offering limited additional information that might lead to more heterogeneous choices. So basically, it says that Robinhood kind of funnels users to the same stocks and, again, prevents them from having a whole picture that helps them make you know, the wisest decisions. The simplification of information of the Robinhood app is likely to provide cognitive ease to investors, leading them to rely more on their intuition and less on critical thinking. So basically, the ease of one-click buying a stock is encouraging investors to make, you know, gut decisions that don't have a whole lot of analytical research behind them. And so their investments are more likely to not lead to returns or potentially even lead to large losses, right? 
Robinhood users may deliberate and hesitate less than other investors when trading due to a lack of frictions because it is easy to place trades on the app and the commissions are zero. Same thing as above. It's it's a little bit too easy and people can make decisions without really thinking through the process. Uh, as evidenced by turnover rates many times higher than at other brokerage firms, Robinhood users are more likely to be trading speculatively and less likely to be trading for reasons such as investing their retirement savings, liquidity demands, tax loss selling, and rebalancing. The lack of non-speculative trading moves uh, motives increases the potential for attention-driven trading. So again, they're, they're distracted by loud noises, by bright flashing lights. That's what's going to get their attention. And they're not really investing with some sort of goal in mind. They're they're adrenaline junkies chasing a profit. And then finally, because Robinhood users are more likely than other investors to be influenced by attention, their purchase behavior is more likely to be correlated. That is, they heard move more than other investors. So they're not diversifying. Robinhood users are actually more likely to behave the same way as each other than these larger firms that are diversifying their investments and they're looking to have both profitable but safe positions in the market. Robinhood users basically follow each other and they, they chase those lines. And you see that with Robin with, with the uh, Wall Street bets and the whole um, you know GameStop thing where as soon as it became a meme and people said start buying, people started buying. I mean, the stock price hit $350 when in July of 2020, it was down at $4 per share. So, you know, that analysis, that research that they've done, you, you definitely very easily see that just by taking an at-a-glance sort of situation with this GameStop thing. So while Robinhood definitely increases, you know, your access to markets, it doesn't exactly churn out billionaires, right? Still, Robinhood's role ostensibly is to provide access and then stay the hell out of the way. So when Robinhood slammed on the brakes to halt trading of these meme stocks, uh, most notably GameStop, right? Alarm bells started ringing in every corner, right? Uh, Robinhood actually reports that they had to stop trading. Uh, because they were actually being forced to put up more collateral to the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, which demands available funds for transactions. Uh, simply put, if I purchase stock from Robinhood, they have to cover that cost while they wait for the transaction to clear my bank account. Otherwise, real-time trading is just not possible, right? They'd have to wait to get my funds and then transfer those funds to the person that they're buying the stock from. And by then, the stock price has definitely changed. So Robinhood claims it was short in their actual capitalizations, and it could not continue to cover these transactions until they actually had more capital on hand. Um, of course, nobody believes that for a single minute, um, especially the people who are hoping to hop on the, the gravy train uh, this late in the game. So, you know, Robinhood slams the, slams the brakes on trading these meme stocks, AMC, BlackBerry, GameStop, all these, these different companies, and these rumors start to swirl. And the rumors start that Robinhood is halting trade to help you know, these Wall Street titans be able to cover their losses and prevent stock prices from increasing further. Um, now there's a very real risk that they're going to lose their customer base because all these people that, you know, are making these trades are are simply put pissed off. Um, they, they locked them down. They wouldn't let them make the trades that they wanted to make. And they have a very real sense that Robinhood is not actually democratizing trading, but is actually in it for the big guys. And... That's that's going to be hard. You know, they, they got 10 million additional users in 2020. Um, I'm interested to see how many users they're going to lose in, in 2021 as a result of this. Of course, there's also the very real risk that there's going to be legal repercussions um, as the heads of the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee are already calling for hearings. Um, hell, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz actually seem to agree on this one. Um, both are accusing Robinhood of helping their wealthy friends on Wall Street. And if you can get those two uh, to agree on anything, it's it's a fucking miracle. But ultimately, uh, this one comes down as, as an I don't know. I mean, if the move was truly a regulatory one, then Robinhood was in the unenviable position of having their hands tied at the worst possible time. Um, and as a result, they, they could possibly die. Um, if they were actually trying to save their billionaire buddies, well, then, I, I mean, may they reap what they've sown. Um, so then, you know, back to the big one. Uh, should any of this bullshit be legal? Um, before I say yes, um, or before I said yes with a caveat, right? And more specifically, that that is caveat emptor, which is Latin for buyer beware. Uh, when you invest in something, you assume a certain amount of risk, right? Don't bet money on the Super Bowl if you can't afford to lose it. Don't invest cash you need to pay your next mortgage. Make sure you can afford to lose what you're putting up, or at the very least, get out of a position with an acceptable loss when things go squirrely. 
But those rules have only been enforced at the individual and, and not the corporate level, right? The housing crisis in 2008 is a perfect example. Uh, homeowners lost $16 trillion worth of value in their homes uh, as a result of that crisis. And 10 million people lost their homes outright. All as a result of bad bets and shitty mortgage practices uh, in the banking and investment community. Uh, the stock market lost nearly 35% of its value and hundreds of thousands of jobs were lost. And the government's reaction to all of this was to create a $700 billion bailout fund to save businesses. Businesses is where the concern is. And I get it. On a certain level, if a business doesn't survive, you know, all the jobs in that business are lost. Uh, but what we're seeing more and more is that bailing out the business doesn't actually save jobs. People are still being laid off to ensure that the business itself is retaining value for investors. So in 2008, they didn't save houses. Foreclosures still rolled in at a ridiculous rate. So really, my opinion on the matter is that if you're going to allow businesses to do shady shit like short stocks, you have to allow those businesses to suffer the repercussions. Look, people tout the separation of church and state nonstop, but what I always wanted is a separation of business and state. Businesses shouldn't be able to buy favorable policies, and the government shouldn't be bailing out the fucking idiots who handed out subprime mortgages, assuming that home values will never decrease. I feel like it's the same thing here. If you're going to live by the short, you can die by the short. We'll be right back. Woo! That was fun. Um, I hope I didn't actually bore anybody to sleep. Uh, good luck to the Chiefs today, and uh, more importantly to the Chiefs fans. Uh, let's all remain calm and not lose our collective minds as we both root for our team and against that fucking nightmare of a human being, Tom Brady. Before we leave, let's take a quick lap uh, around the league, uh, and then we'll sign off here. Uh, there are only uh, three teams in the league yet to win a game this season, but that will shortly be over as two of the winless teams in Curtis and Michael face off in the Battle of the Basement. Uh, led by 13.4 points from Colton Pareko, uh, Curtis actually finds himself on the brink of escaping shittiness, as he currently leads Michael by 36 points. Over in the Antarctic, the two worst teams are facing off as the 1-1 one one Cellar Dwellers and the 1-1 one one Eduardo's team battle. Led by Jake Allen's two victories and Mitch Marner's goal and five assists, Dave Cellar Dwellers are putting up the second best score in the league this week, and could jump as high as fourth place in the league as they lead Eduardo by nearly 30 points. In cross-division matchups, uh, Jess has been there, done that, are beating up on Ashley's team too. Uh, Jeff Petrie's four goals and two assists this week have Jess holding on to a 10-point lead. And the undefeated No Regretskis, managed by Ashton, are keeping up their winning ways as they hold an 8-point lead over David's JT Millers. Ashton has gotten 25.1 points from David Pasternak this week, thanks to five goals and two assists over three monstrous games. And speaking of undefeated teams, uh, the other two unbeaten teams will likely still be on top come tomorrow, as Anthony's full Kopitard have a 20-point lead over Isaiah's hockey team, thanks to Philip Forsberg and Patrick Kane, while Jacob's team leads all teams in scoring and is currently whipping Melissa's 1-1 one -one team by 57 points. Jacob is led by Andre Vasilevsky's three wins this week and Joe Pavelski's two goals and three assists. And that does it for this week. Um, thanks to Jacob for not actually joining the pod, thus preventing me from using his custom sound buffer and ensuring that this podcast has to survive for another week. While I look forward to the reduced anxiety of solo content creation and the freedom that blogging will return to me, uh, that dream will have to stay in the future for now. Um, so till next time, and in keeping with the tradition of ending these things with a quote, I find it difficult to say goodbye to you all even when it seems like I was never welcomed. 